0: Please join me as I read the passage on which today's teaching is based. It comes from Esther chapter 4. I'm going to begin with verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hattach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hadach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hadach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, The king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family's family will perish, and who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. And this is God's word. Throughout Advent, we've been looking at the book of Esther. Esther is an orphan girl uh, at at the time of the great Jewish exile to Persia, who through a series of events, she became queen queen of the entire empire, the most powerful empire to date. And so the book of Esther naturally answers the question, what does it mean to be a Christian with wealth? What does it mean to be a Christian with influence and power in a society that does not necessarily share your values? Now, in verse 1 and 2 here in this passage, Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin, uh, he's in sackcloth, and he's mourning throughout the city. And he gets to the king's gate. That's where the king is with his cabinet. He wasn't allowed to enter the king's gate uh, like that because uh, Susa, which is the capital, right, that's the center of power for this empire, for somebody in sackcloth to enter into the gate and be seen there it would make the the entire empire, the representative of the entire empire look weak and broken and poor. But Mordecai's there right at the gate and he's trying to get Esther's attention. And through a series of asynchronous messages, kind of like email, we see this in verses 4 through 16, a series of asynchronous messages, through messengers going back and forth, there's a dialogue that Esther is having with Mordecai, with each other, and what's the message? Verse 8, Mordecai says it, you're right there at the center, you are in the capital with the king's court, in the center, and we need your help. That's what he says, why? He explains it in verses 4 to 8. To Esther's eunuch, powerful evil forces have risen up and aligned in the Persian Empire to destroy the Jews, to destroy Mordecai and, and the Jews, God's people. And they've manipulated the king to make a decree that on a certain day at the end of the year, the Jews are to be destroyed and they're to be plundered. There's this conspiracy basically for genocide. Usually, you would wear sackcloth after a disaster but in verse, four, uh, verse three, Mordecai and the Jews, that's the entire subculture of this empire. Many of them are in sackcloth, and they're mourning, and they're praying. And so in chapters one to two, you see uh, two feasts, two feasts. But here are the Jews, they're fasting, they're hungry. Before there was a celebration, now there's mourning. Before, there was luxury in the court, cosmetics and treatments, beauty treatments, Here, they're wearing sackcloth. Mordecai tells Esther, because of where you are, you're right there in the luxury. You're right there in the celebration. You're right there in the feast. Because of where you are, you can use your power. You can use your wealth. You can use your influence, your social capital, so to speak, to bring about great change. What do we see in this text? Three R's. Try to make it as memorable and cute as possible. Verse 11, you see the risk. Verses 13 to 14, you see the reminder. And verses 15 to 16, you see the response. The risk, the reminder, the response. First, we're going to look at the risk. Esther begins in this uh, responding to Mordecai in verse 11. She says, if I go to the king without invitation, this is punishable. I could be put to death for this. It's a capital offense I'm literally, I'd be risking my life. You see, uh, the the law was strict. The Persian law was strict regarding entering into the king's private rooms because he was heavily protected. I mean, this this is the king of the entire empire. You can't just walk around in the throne room. You can't just walk in uninvited. In fact, there were only seven people who would ever be allowed to enter into the king's court without being summoned, and Esther was not one of the seven. In fact, she says, I haven't been even invited by the king in 30 days. That's what he says. And Mordecai, what he's really saying is, look, well, Esther, what she's saying is, look, I got here because the last queen was too bold. She was too bold. Now you're asking me to be Bold. You're asking me to be bold. Look what happened to the last queen. You're asking me to risk giving everything up. In verse 11, when she says, I haven't gone to the king in 30 days, what she's really saying is, the king hasn't called me in. She hasn't seen the king in 30 days. They've been married for five years now. Maybe he's tired of me. Can you imagine the king of the empire being tired of me, and I just kind of walk into his presence when he hasn't called me? It's punishable by death. Now, the king... He believes the Jews must be killed off. If Esther makes this appeal, she has to reveal herself, reveal her identity, that she's been hiding this from the king all this time. She could lose everything. The only exception is if the king were to extend this golden scepter, which would spare her life. This is the struggle. Leland Riken, he's a great scholar and commentator. He, he points out that Esther is the only person In the narrative, with two names. The entire story, she's the only one with two names. She's got a Persian name, a worldly name, and she's got a Hebrew name. There's a clear identity crisis here for Esther. On one hand, she's living this worldly life and she's got a worldly name. On the other hand, she's called by God and so she has a Hebrew name. That's us. All of us here, we have two names. We have two names in a sense. Esther's first response, it reveals the tension and the risk of living in between these two names, a worldly name and our calling. Mordecai says, you have arrived. You are a rising star. You are a beautiful person. Everybody loves you. The king himself loves you. Verse 14, how do you know that you're not here for this moment, for this purpose, to shape the king and to shape then the whole world? Who's he talking to? He's talking to you because if you're here in this big city and you're working and you're an educated person and you have wealth and you're flourishing, then you're in the king's gate. You're in the palace. Now, some of you are saying, well, I just got started. I'm not really there yet. It's going to be a while. Then you're like Esther. Esther's saying, I just got started. I haven't really arrived I'm not quite there. I can still lose everything. Most people here are working on their careers. They're using their gifts to move up in the world. They're exploiting their talent, something that was given to them to build their security. You know what that means? You are inside the King's Gate, you're working for Xerxes. And there are people who do not have the privilege that you enjoy. They're less educated. They don't have the connections or the network. And they're mourning and they're praying. And the system is pretty much set up against them, neglecting them in a sense. Here's the key. Like Esther, you have two names. You have a worldly name. So you have a worldly name. You have access into the palace so you can live out your calling by God. That's the risk, though, that comes with him. Now, how does Mordecai counsel Esther? How does he remind Esther? And he responds, again, asynchronously. He responds with two thoughts. First, he says in verses 13 to 14, basically saying this. He says, Esther, do you get it? Don't you get it? No one is going to escape this man. He wants every one of our people dead. That includes you. Don't you think ever that because you are with the king that you alone are going to escape. If you don't risk everything now, you will lose everything tomorrow. Your family will lose everything tomorrow. And relief and deliverance from God, from the Jews, will arise for the Jews from another place. That's what he says. Basically what he's saying is, if you risk speaking to the king, you may lose everything. It's possible but what is the cost of not risking everything? You would have lost your soul. Either you will be discovered once all the Jews are killed. They're going to find that you also are a Jew and you will be killed. Or if there's any Jews who survive, you will be recognized as someone who could have helped but didn't, and thus you're a traitor. You have status. You have influence. You have credibility. You have a pedigree in this kingdom. You have connections. You have wealth. Don't be silent, he says. You have the best chance of helping others. So stop exploiting your your wealth and your power just as a way to build yourself and further your own agenda, but see it as a way to serve the broken, to serve the voiceless. In other words, either the palace life has consumed you and self-preservation will overtake you, or you will see the greater calling. You will see your true identity, your true calling, and as a result, courage and sacrifice and service will overtake you. In Mark chapter 10, a rich young ruler confronts Jesus Christ, comes to him and he asks, now Jesus Christ is also a rich young ruler, right? A rich young ruler comes to Jesus Christ, the king, and he asks him, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Now, the interesting thing about this man is he's incredibly wealthy. He's incredibly powerful. He's a rich young ruler. But the author intentionally chooses not to mention his name. Why? Because for the rich man, wealth is his name. Power was his name. So Jesus says, go sell all your possessions, give it away to the poor, and then follow me. And the text says that the man walked away and he was, he was deeply troubled. He was grieved. Why? Because he had great wealth. In other words, for this rich young ruler, like Esther, either I'm wealthy, either I'm powerful, or I'm nothing. In other words, it's so possible to root our identity in our careers, in our position, moving up and building in the right neighborhood, sending our children to the right school to have privilege, to have wealth, that you're inside the King's Gate. You finally made it, and you can say to yourself, I can wear these kind of clothes. I can buy anything I want at any point in time. I have buying power. I have that. I live in this area. I have influence. I have social capital, financial capital. Mordecai saying if wealth and security and comfort is how you know you're okay, you're already dead. Because if anything apart from God becomes your source of validation, then you will work super hard to maintain it and you will, you will be tremendously in fear and anxiety because you're always, always afraid to lose it. It's gonna grip you, it's gonna shape you and control you and it's gonna lead you to misery, anxiety and depression. And you're gonna become a hater you're going to become a hater. Why? Because before, you may have been generous. You may have given. You may have demonstrated some, some generosity, but after a while, you're going to say, those people, they don't deserve this. I worked hard for what I got, for what I've earned. And then you're going to get jaded. What difference is this going to make anyway? That's our way of justifying, not giving. What difference is this going to make anyway? Mordecai is saying, if you're unwilling to risk your wealth and your position and your, and your power for other people, you're already dead. The second thing he says is in verse 14. Who knows, but that you've come to this royal position for such a time as this. Very powerful thought there. He's asking, how did you get here? How did you get here? You were brought here by grace. You never earned your beauty. That's what got you here. Esther could have said, well, but I worked hard. For a year, I had to go through a weeding out process. I worked really, really hard. But the reality is she worked with gifts that she never earned. She worked with gifts. Sheer grace, it was given to her. The very nature of a gift is what? You receive it. And why? Mordecai says, maybe it's for this reason. Maybe it's for this moment. This time. Maybe you were born for this, this opportunity, this purpose. You thought you were born to be queen, but maybe you were born to to serve an even greater purpose. It clearly struck a nerve for Esther, began to move Esther. How do you know that? That's the third point, her response. It's because you see her fears, her approval seeking. It starts to go away. The one who never rocks the boat, The one who never ruffles feathers. In verses 15 and 16, what do you see? Immediately, she's starting to give orders. Now you really see her queenliness start to arise. Until this point, Esther is super passive. She's just taken from place to place. You gotta look at the whole context of the book here. She's just being swept away. Just taken place to place. She's passive. She's objectified. Now, she's taking action. She's exerting authority. She's the subject. She's the primary voice. He's got courage. Leland Riken again, he says, It's through this traumatic ordeal that a beautiful woman with weak character is transformed to a person with heroic moral stature and political skill. In other words, where do you see Esther's true potential start to reveal itself? It's when. Is it when she's living in the palace, in her comfort, in her nice clothes, in the midst of all her wealth? No. It's when she starts to risk her life, risk her identity, all the things that she loves, all the things that we all crave and pursue. It's when she starts to sacrifice these things, risk these things. It's when she risks her life that she becomes recognized as a queen, It's when she recognizes who she is and why she's really there, that's when greatness really comes. Greatness comes when she stopped trying to be great, at least in her definition, and she starts to submit. She starts to go down and submit to God's call. Then she starts to live a big life. It's the first series of great reversals in this book. This book is filled with great turnaround, great reversals. Before She says, I'm afraid I'm going to lose everything. Now she says, no, I want you to do this, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do it for this amount of time, because I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. Her dream was to be a queen, and now what does she do? As queen, she identifies with the weak and the poor and the broken and the marginalized, and she risks her life. If I perish, I perish. No one else could do this in this book. No one else would do this in this book. No one else is in the position to do this in this book. No one else could risk this in this book. It had to be Esther. It had to be her. Only she can earn the favor of the king in a way that that favor could transfer over to her people because she identified with them. And she says, basically, they are I. Let them have the favor that I received. Let them have the favor that I deserve. By saying that, if I perish, I perish. He's saying, may I die by the king. May I die by Haman's hand. But at least I will be free. I'm going to have my life back. Her response to Mordecai is a courage that begets freedom. Where do we get that courage? Mordecai says to Esther, if you don't do this, God's going to call someone else. God's going to call someone else. Someone else will rise. Esther's queen. She sees a glimpse of someone greater, somebody greater, a king that is sovereign, that is present in all this. Esther is a mere pointer to a greater Esther, an ultimate Esther. Esther is able to do what she did just on the glimpse of her calling, just a glimpse of the promise of God. And what does she do? She takes direct action. Mordecai says, if it's not you, it's going to be someone else. And with very little understanding, Esther trusts, Esther acts. We have more than a glimpse. Friends, we have so much more than a glimpse. We see the entire reality. We get to see the entire horizon as well. What Esther didn't know that God Himself, the King, is going to come. And He's going to do what she's doing in this text. Jesus Christ is the ultimate King, He had the ultimate favor, the ultimate beauty. He had the ultimate glory, the ultimate security, the ultimate comfort. Only he could do what he did. Only he would do what he did. Only he's able to do and risk what he did. It had to be him. That's why it had to be Jesus. You know the hymn? It's one of my favorites. He left the Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Jesus Christ left the the favor of the Father, the beauty, the glory, the security, the comfort. No one begged him to do it. No one one sat there and mourned for him to do it. Hebrews Hebrews chapter 12 says, but he did it with joy. Isaiah 53 said that after he did it, he was satisfied. He was pleased. In other words, he was glad to do it. Esther was troubled. In that defining moment, you see the tension, and you see the risk, the danger, and you see her straining in that because of what might happen. Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 26, knowing everything that's about to happen, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I am troubled to the point of death. And then he chose it. He chose it. Esther calls for a fast. Fast. A fast of food and drink. Jesus Christ also says, Father, let this thing pass from me. Let this cup, let the drink pass from me. But God desired for him to take it all in. God desired that he would take it all. The cup that he was talking about was the cup of God's wrath as a penalty for our sins. And Jesus Christ drank it all, he took it all alone. Esther tells the people, I want, I want you to pray. And they did. They prayed the entire time. Jesus Christ asks his disciples to pray. They all fall asleep. And so he was completely alone even before he died. Esther says, I want you to take up sackcloth and ashes. Whenever you wear sackcloth and ashes, it means you are to the dust. It means it implies that you're dead. You're you're as dead. Jesus Christ, what happens? He's stripped naked. He has nothing. And he takes up the cross and he suffers it entirely alone until he dies. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. Jesus Christ says, when I perish, I perish. Jesus Christ is the greater Esther by far, and he fulfills the duty graciously and compassionately as the king, in full. And he says, death, the cross, is my glory. That's the glory that I am pursuing. Why? Because he identified with the weak. He identified with the poor. He identified with us. And he takes on our condemnation and the death that we deserve so that we would have the favor of God that he deserved. The cross represents Jesus Christ taking everything that we deserve and giving us everything he deserved. Not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And he makes atonement for our sins. And so the Bible says that Jesus Christ stands before the throne of God Before the ultimate king, and he earned the favor of God for us. Only he could do it. Only he would do it. Only he would risk everything to do it. And only he would gladly choose to do it. And he did it perfectly. Esther feared, what if the pardon is not given to me? What if I'm not given the the scepter? What if my life isn't uns- is spared? Then I'll be forsaken. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does that apply to us? When you look at the gospel, when you look at the cross, how does that apply to us? Mordecai says, number one, Mordecai says, you might risk your life, you who have power and wealth, you might risk your life if you speak up for the voiceless, the broken. But if you don't, you're as good as dead. What is he implying? Whether you help or not, suffering is normative. Suffering is inevitable. But it doesn't have to destroy you. In fact, it can shape you, bring about your true potential. Look at Esther. She became brave. She became stronger through the risk, through the brokenness. She became more compassionate through the risk. Through the surrender, she became humbler through the emptying of herself. She became wiser through this. Esther, as a mere example, you can never be like Esther. You will never be as courageous as Esther. Esther, as an example, will make you feel inadequate most times when you fail, arrogant when you succeed. But Esther pointing to the ultimate Esther, the true king, Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate substitute for us who goes to the cross for you, there's the validation that you've been looking for all your life. There's the value, the significance that you've been looking for, the worth that you've been looking for all your life. There's the favor and the beauty and the glory and the, and the security and the comfort that you need to the, to the degree that you trust that you will be free. Worldly comfort, worldly wealth, worldly glory will never die for you. In fact, you will die for those things. You are dying for those things, but you can be free you can be free. You can take worldly comfort. You can take your status. You can take your, your degrees and your comfort and the glory that you receive, your accomplishments. You can take these things, your credibility, and you can use these things as a tool that you can use, that you can risk, that you can lose, all as a part of God's great calling for you. That's how you live a big life. Because Jesus Christ gave up the ultimate title, the ultimate power, the ultimate wealth, and the ultimate security and comfort, and he became powerless for you. He became vulnerable for you. And if you see the great high king becoming vulnerable for you, surely you, as someone he has appointed in the world, can become vulnerable for his sake. That's the first way that we can apply it. Secondly, Mordecai says, it's such a time as this. Some of you right now, it's your time. You're rising. You're building your lives. We're all, we all have gifts. We all have potential and abilities to make us uniquely, uniquely gifted. Uniquely available to help certain people people here in this city that no one else can help if you weren't involved that no one else can be helped if you didn't give that no one else could be helped if you didn't serve like esther you have a choice mission to be on mission takes courage if you don't your life will never make complete sense You always be trying to reconcile the life that you have and that you've been given the grace of god that you have received with the life that you're living and the brokenness that's out in the world it's going to come up with more questions that confuse you you see that ask the lord how you can have courage to live in accordance with his purpose for you pray to the lord talk to him Seek accountability regarding your wealth and your power and your jobs with other people around you who are similarly able, but you respect because they have a wisdom that they themselves have grown into. Thirdly, if I perish, I perish. Do you identify? Who do you identify with? Because we desire to identify with other wealthy people. We desire to identify with intelligent people. We desperately want to identify with people who are loved and are beautiful. Who does Esther identify with? Who does Jesus Christ, the greater Esther, identify with? The broken and the poor and the voiceless. So much that Jesus Christ was born in a manger. You know, Christmas is not about children being born in thrones. There aren't many thrones out there in the world. Christmas is about the high king who was born in a manger. And there are mangers everywhere. No one thinks about mangers. It wasn't even intended for him. Look at who God uses. God uses Esther, a queen. You know what that means? You have have education. You have status. You have wealth. If you want these things, if you have these things, how about using them for the glory of God? That's the true mark of faith in your work. What do you use your work for? On one hand, we're called to do our jobs well, but are you reminded of the greater call to live a big life with your privileges, a big life with your privilege, period, a big life with your wealth and your gifts? To say, if I perish, I perish, it means that my life is not my own. It means I'm going to obey, no matter what. Even if I sacrifice my life, that's what it means to live a big life. Friends, Christmas is about the High King who sacrificed his kingdom so that we can have access to that kingdom to live that big life now. It's a desperate time. We will you hear the call and heed the call to join that mission? That's what it means to be a part of the church. Let's pray.